Joshua chapter 10 this morning as we continue our series on prayer. Joshua chapter 10. What we are discovering as we look at the significant prayers out of the Bible is that there's a story that always surrounds a prayer. That's true in our lives as well. Prayers never stand alone. There's always a context, if you will, to our prayers and to our prayer life. And we've been seeing that with the prayer of Abraham and last week the prayer of Moses and today the prayer of Joshua. And so really, as we talk about prayer and as we look at these significant prayers out of the Bible, it's not even so much the prayer itself as it is what surrounds the prayer, the story around the prayer that really I think we can glean a lot from that will enhance and hopefully encourage our own prayer life and to go to God in prayer. And I think that that certainly is going to be true again today as we look at Joshua chapter 10. Let me just share with you this. And this comes right from the word of God. In fact, if you look at Joshua 10, look at verse 14. God himself says, there's not been a day like this day that we're going to talk about today before or since in human history. What we're going to talk about today, what we're going to look at today Never occurred before this day in the book of Joshua and has never occurred since. That's a pretty special, significant day. And we're going to look at the events of this very significant day. But before we do that, let me also set the context here. This is from the book of Joshua, where Joshua and the nation of Israel are marching through the promised land, taking what God had promised them a long time ago. But let's not forget what sort of got them to this place. That years before, God told the people of Israel through Moses, I'm giving you this land. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And all you have to do is believe in me and trust in me. And you can have this land for yourself. So Moses gathered some spies, including Joshua and Caleb, sent them out to this land and said, let's check it out before we go in. And you know the story. The spies came back and they started to say, Moses, you're right. God God was true. That is a land flowing with milk and honey. And look at the fruit of this land. I mean, that stuff was huge. And they said, wow. But, but they said, The inhabitants of that land are strong and they're greater than we are and they're they're stronger than we are and and we cannot go into that land and conquer it. Caleb stands up and says, are you kidding me? God promised us that this was our land and we just have to trust him for the victory. We have to believe in him and we certainly can go up with God, and we can possess this land. But the Bible says that the discouraging report from the other spies overrode Joshua and Caleb's report, and the people of Israel made a decision that day not to believe in God, to despise what God said, and basically said, we can't go in. So God has a meeting with Moses, and God basically says, Because these people will not believe, because they are so faithless, 
because they despise me and my word. Everyone 20 years and older who have murmured against me is going to die in this wilderness and they're going to wander for 40 years. And only those 20 years and younger and Joshua and Caleb, only they will enter into the promised land. And here's what God told Moses. And this is good for Mother's Day and Father's Day and just a good reminder for us as parents. God told Moses, because of the parents' unfaithfulness, their own children are going to suffer in having to wander for 40 years before they get a chance to go into the promised land. It's a reminder to us as parents, because we live in a culture, even in Christianity today, where Christian parents think that they do their own children a service by putting their, their children's spiritual health ahead of their own. And what the Bible teaches is the best thing we can do for our children is to make sure our spiritual health is okay. Because our children will suffer because we're not in a good spiritual place as parents. And that's exactly what happened. So now we come, fast forward to the book of Joshua. Finally, all of that unbelieving generation has died in the wilderness. And here come Joshua and Caleb with the children of that generation. And I'm sure they're more than ready to leave the wilderness behind, to leave the wandering behind, to leave the desert behind, and to finally come into this land flowing with milk and honey. But when they came in, they were going to have to fight for it. God wasn't just going to lay it out there for them. And they started to see victory in the promised land, just as God said. And these victories started to intimidate the people of that land, and especially the kings of that land and the leaders of that land. And that's where we pick it up then in Joshua chapter 10. Please follow along as I read. Adonai Zedek. There's a handle for you, huh? The king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua captured Ai and annihilated it and its king. And as he did, Jericho and its king. He also heard how the people of Gibeon made peace with Israel and lived among them. All Jerusalem was terrified because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and all its men were warriors. So King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent this message to King Oham of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon. Come to my aid so we can attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings all gathered together and their troops, and they advanced. They deployed their troops... And they fought against Gibeon. Now the thing to remember here is that at this point, obviously, Jerusalem was not on the right side. You see. It was still in enemy hands. And so these five kings and all of them are now coming together to attack Gibeon because Gibeon has made friendship, has made peace, has made a, a, a covenant treaty with the Israelites. And they're just afraid of what 
The Gibeonites, and especially, though, what Joshua and the Israelites are going to do. So they want to wipe them out before they even get the opportunity. And obviously, even though the Gibeonites are strong people with a lot of brave warriors, it's five groups against one at this point. The odds aren't very good with the Gibeonites. So notice in verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent this message to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal. Do not abandon your subjects. Rescue us. Help us. For all the Amorite kings living in the hill country are attacking us. Notice something here that's an important principle for us. These people were not too proud to ask for help. We need to learn that lesson. There's times where things in our life are way beyond our ability on our own to be able to handle. And that's always true with God. We need to learn to always, every day, depend and rely on God. But there's times where we need to reach out to each other and say, I need help. And that's what the Gibeonites did. Pride will keep us from doing that. Humility will allow us to reach out at times and say, I can't handle this or I can't navigate this on my own. I need some help. Now, the Israelites notice their response. Joshua and his whole army, verse 7, including the bravest warriors of Israel, marched up from Gilgal. The significance here is they had entered into this covenant with the Gibeonites. And I'm not going to go into the backstory of that. You can read how the Gibeonites, you know, in chapter 9 deceived them and all of that. The important thing here in this context is the Israelites honored their word. They were faithful to their vow to the Gibeonites. They told the Gibeonites that they would protect them, that they would be on their side, that they would be there for them. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. They were faithful to their word. When the Gibeonites were in trouble and asked for their help, there was Israel ready to go up and help the Gibeonites. You and I need to make sure that we honor our word, that we are faithful to the promises that we make, that we are faithful to our vows that we make to others. And that's exactly what we see here with the nation of Israel. Notice verse 8. The Lord told Joshua, don't be afraid of them, for I am handing them over to you. Not one of them can resist you. Notice, first of all, the command of God. And the command is, don't be afraid. The most common command in the Bible from God to human beings is, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid to do what God is asking you to do. Don't let the crippling, paralyzing fear keep you from doing what you know God wants you to do. This is a message some of you may need to be reminded of today. Some of you are holding back in your life right now. You're not stepping up and stepping into what you know God wants you and is leading you to do. And the reason you're not stepping up and stepping into God's will is because you're afraid. And that fear is keeping you from God's will. It might even be a fear of failure. I'm afraid 
of, of putting myself out there. I'm afraid of being vulnerable. I'm afraid of failing. I get it. We can make all kinds of, you know, reasonings and excuses. But the bottom line is, if God is leading us to something, if God is calling us to something, if this we know is God's will, then we need to, in spite of our fear, step up and step into it and not be in awe. Because really that's what the word fear here means in the Hebrew. It means God is basically saying to Joshua and the Israelites, don't stand in all of those five kings and those five armies. Stand in all of me. Because when you and I stand in all of God alone, then we will stand in all of no one else or nothing else. That's what God wants us to learn as followers of Jesus Christ. When we stand in all of God, then we will stand in awe of nothing or no one else. Think of the story of the little shepherd boy, David, who stood before the giant Goliath. How could that little shepherd boy go out and meet that giant and face that giant? Because he wasn't going to stand in awe of that giant, no matter how big the giant was. He was standing in awe of his God. And he knew that that's all that was necessary. That's why we need to learn to worship God and to see God for who he is and to acknowledge God for who he is. Because when we learn who God is and we acknowledge who God is, then we will live in awe of him and live in awe of no one or nothing else. And then notice also that God, along with this command, gives Joshua and the Israelites a promise. He says, do not be afraid because I am handing them over to you. I am going to deliver them. Many times in the Bible, when God commands us to do something, he also accompanies that command with the promise. He basically says, don't or do this and I'm going to do this. You see, and we need to be aware of that as well. God was going to deliver. He was going to give these five armies into the hands of Israel. Now, God may not want to give you an army or deliver another human being, if you will, into your hands. But here's something else we can take from this. God may want to give you something now. He he wants to entrust you with something. He wants to deliver something into your hands. Do you and I have the faith right now, the belief, the trust, to take a hold of it? Again, not to fear, but to be willing to step up and step into it and say, God, I'll take what you're going to give me. God wants us always to be willing and ready to take up. And to take on what he's willing to give us. What he's willing to deliver into our hands. Because God goes on to say, they will not be able to stand against you. They will not be able to resist you. I am with you. Now notice verse 9. This is important. Because all the promises of God and all... uh, of the assurances of God mean nothing if you and I on the other end of it are not people of faith. So notice here that Joshua and the Israelites respond in faith. They attack them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. 
Now, the reason why every detail and every word in the word of God is important is because we could just read that verse and keep on going. But there's something significant happening here. And that is, even though God has promised to deliver these armies into the hands of Israel, notice that God is calling the Israelites into partnership with himself. And that the Israelites can't just sit back and expect God to do everything. They've got to put forth some skin in the game too. And not just some skin in the game. When you understand what's happening here, you understand that from Gilgal to where they were going to battle was going to be a steep climb over about 20 or more miles distance with packs on their back all night. In other words, it was an all-night forced march uphill over 20 miles. Not easy. But they understood something. That yes, God's going to deliver these armies into our hands, but we've got to do our part. We've got to do the things that we can do and then let the things that are out of our control that we can't do up to God. Can I say this morning that that's something God wants to impress upon all of us? Because again, we live even in a culture in Christianity where people want to sit back and not do their part and expect God to show up and do his part. And again, let me repeat this. The biblical principle taught throughout the Bible is that God wants to call us into partnership with himself. So that we work together to accomplish great things. Where it's not we sit back and let God do it all, but we do what we can do and let God do what only God can do. So notice again verse 9. Joshua attacked them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal and the Lord routed them, literally crushed them before Israel. Israel thoroughly defeated them at Gibeon. Notice the partnership between the Israelites and God accomplished something great. I want to encourage you all here today with that. Because as God calls you into partnership with him, as God calls this church into partnership with him, God wants this partnerships that we have with him to accomplish great things. And it will, if we believe in who God is and trust in his promises and we are willing to do our part, just as Joshua and the Israelite army did. Notice the Bible says they chased them up the road to the pass at Beth Oron, struck them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled from Israel on the slope leading down from Beth Oron, the Lord threw down on them large hailstones from the sky all the way to Azekah. In fact, they died. In fact, more died from the hailstones than from the Israelites who killed them with the sword. Now, why is this significant? Because all of these Amorite kings and these warriors and all of these people, they worship the gods of nature. So think about it. 
They're thinking at this point their own gods are attacking them. And God is trying to show them, first of all, the gods that you worship, these nature gods, they're not God. I'm the only one and true God. And I'm the one that controls nature. And so these large hail... This was no, like, accident that God chose hailstones, you see. And again, what God is showing even his own people is, look, I'll show up. I'll fight for you. I'll do great things for you, but you've got to do your part. It's the one thing that rang through this passage with me, and we're going to continue to hammer that point all the way through. Joshua did what he could do which prompted God to do what only God could do. Joshua had no control over the hail. Joshua and his army could not throw hailstones down. But what Joshua and his army could do is march all night uphill for over 20 miles and get to that battlefield and give everything they had on that battlefield. And then trust God to do the rest. And that's exactly what happened. Notice in verse 12. The day the Lord delivered the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua then prays to the Lord before Israel. In other words, think about it. Here's the leader of of the nation of Israel at this point. He sees God at work. He sees, you know, he's reassured and and it's reconfirmed that God is on their side and he's going to show up and he's doing great things. So now seeing God at work prompts Joshua to ask for something audacious. An even greater miracle. And notice what his prayer is. Oh, son, stand still over Gibeon. Literally, be still, son. O moon over the valley of Ajalon. And the Bible says the sun stood still and the moon stood motionless while the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Literally, while Israel completed its victory. In other words, this was done to let Israel accomplish a complete victory. Which let me say right here before I go into this other stuff that... God is the God of a complete victory, not partial victory. What God wants to do in our lives isn't just help us to overcome something a little bit, but to overcome something completely. He's not just the God of partial victory. He's the God of complete victory. Because every battle that God ever fights, guess what? He wins and he wins decisively and he wins completely. So when you and I are hooked up with God in partnership with God, then whatever stands in our way, meaning your way and God's way, or my way and God's way, where we're hooked and linked up together, it doesn't stand a chance. And it's not just going to be 25% defeated or 50% defeated. It's going to be absolutely crushed. When you and God hook up. Now, Many liberal theologians and liberal scholars and even people that don't believe in the Bible have looked at this over the years and said, Ah, here's one great example that the Bible cannot be true. There is no way that the sun can stand still. 
And first of all, let's even go be. Doesn't anybody know that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth? The earth revolves around the sun. So that even the language they're using isn't right. And yet, can I remind all of us that these liberals who attack the Bible have no problem, even though that's true, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun. They have no trouble using the words every day, sunrise and sunset. Because even in our language, though we understand now, scientifically, that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, that the earth revolves around the sun, we still use language that depicts exactly what's happening here. Every time we use the word sunrise and sunset, we're basically saying the same thing. And then there are those that go, well, that just couldn't happen. There's no way that, you know, just the earth could stop rotating or somehow the sun could stay out longer than it. I mean, that would just mess everything up. You know, stars would start to collide and planets and the whole world would have been whacked out. Look, and I'm not going to stand before you today and try to explain how God did this. I don't know how God did this, but I know this. I know that my God created this all in the first place. He's the one that made the stars and made the sun and made the moon and made this universe and made this planet. And anytime God wants to do something with his creation, God can do it. There is nothing too difficult for God. There is nothing impossible for God. If God wanted to keep the sun up for a little bit longer so that Israel had more daylight time to be able to get a complete victory, then God can do it, however God chooses to do it. Whether somehow God could compensate and, and slow the earth's rotation or whatever, I don't know. But I know my God, He made it all, He can control it all. And He can do it anytime. He well pleases. What we do know is that exactly what Joshua prayed happened. Joshua said, God, would you stop the sun and give me a little bit more daylight so that we can complete this victory? And let me direct your attention again to what the Bible says. Verse 13. The sun stopped moving and the moon stood motionless while the nation took vengeance on its enemies. The event is recorded in the scroll of the upright one. The sun stood motionless in the middle of the sky and did not set for about a full day. There's not been a day like it before or since. What a day. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment, but I I, I want to finish this out here for a moment from this passage. Notice next what it says. The Lord obeyed a man. The word obeyed here, though, means to listen attentively and with great interest. God was listening attentively and with great interest to what Joshua was praying Can I encourage you in your prayer life with these words as well? 
that just as God listened attentively and with great interest to Joshua, God has just as much interest in your prayers and will listen attentively to you when you pray? Especially when you pray with the kind of faith that Joshua had. God, would you stop the sun? And notice it goes on to say, and God fought for Israel. And can I remind you, God wants to fight for you too. He wants you to partner with him so that you and him can accomplish great things and overcome things in your life and see victory rather than defeat. That's what God wants to do. He will fight your battles. He will fight your giants. But you and I got to believe and we've got to be willing to do what we can do. And notice in this word fought, it not only means that God is willing to enter into battle with us, but literally he will prevail. In other words, In the word fought here is the idea that you realize that when we enter in with God, God wins. God never loses a battle. So whatever battle God is inviting us in to be with him and and be partners with, he will win that battle because God doesn't lose to anybody or anything. And he wanted Israel to realize that as well. Now, what can we take from this audacious prayer of Joshua that in the middle of this battle, Joshua has the faith to say, oh, by the way, God, can you keep the sun up for just a little while longer while we finish the battle? Here's a couple things to think about here. First of all, how could Joshua pray that in the first place? Because Joshua knew that he was doing the will of God. He knew, based upon what God had already told him, that this was, God's wor- this was God's will. I'm going to deliver all of these armies into your hands. So it wasn't just this willy-nilly, Joshua all of a sudden got crazy that the heat of the sun baked his brain, and he just said, oh, you know, God, keep the sun from going down. No, He understood that that prayer, as audacious and crazy as it was, was actually in line with what God had told him. That God was going to give him complete victory. So in Joshua's little human pea brain, and nothing against Joshua, we all have pea brains compared to God's brain. Joshua's thinking, well, I know God promised me that he would deliver these armies into my hand. But the clock is ticking and it's getting dark. And the only way I'm going to get complete victory is to keep the sun going. So God, sun stand still. And it did. It did. I I think sometimes the reason why we don't pray sun stand still type of prayers is because we're so focused on our will rather than on God's will. That's why. See, when we know we're doing God's will, then we can pray those kind of prayers. Son, stand still, because we know it's in line with God and his will. But here's the second thing. And that is that 
Joshua was able to pray that prayer because Joshua knew he had done everything that he could do. And that God had to do what he could not do. You see. You and I need to remember that and be mindful of that. Because so many Christians today, they want God to keep the sun still in their life. God, do a miracle in my life. God, move in some great way. God, keep the sun up. You know, God, you know, uh, I want you to do something big in my life. But we're not willing to do our part. And see, what this passage in Joshua teaches is that God will be willing to keep that sun still in our life if we're willing to do our part. If we're willing to march uphill 20 miles with a pack on our back all night and put forth some effort on our part doing what we can, then God will show up in great ways. And we will see victory. And we will see the sun stand still in our life. But we're not going to see those sun stand still moments in our life when we're not willing to do what we can do. Now, let me give you a real practical example of this. And I hope you all take this the way I'm meaning it, and especially where my heart is at as I say this. And let me preface what I'm about to say by saying this. I realize that some of you, it would be physically impossible for you to get here on Tuesday night to Bible study. I'm not talking to you. And I'm going to give you an example of a couple that used to come to the Oasis, and that's why I'm giving you them. I'm not going to obviously mention names, but I'm going to give them to you as an example today because they no longer come here, okay? And it's not like they're the only ones that I've had these kind of conversations with before. I've had them in New York as a pastor. I've had them in Maryland as a pastor. I've had these kind of similar conversations with Christians over 30 plus years. There was a couple whose lives were falling apart individually and as a couple. And they basically wanted God to show up. God, do something big. We need a miracle, God. We need the sun to stand still in our lives. Our lives are falling apart. We're crashing. We're burning, God. God, you got to do something. And so... They obviously invited me to come in and be a part of that conversation and give them some counsel and advice as a pastor. And I basically said this. I said, so here's one of the things God wants to teach you. You got to believe that God will keep that sun still. You've got to believe that God will show up and do something big and do something great. But you've got to be willing to do your part. And so for the next eight weeks just to try to get them to start developing some faithfulness and discipline in their lives, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to commit yourself to coming eight straight Sundays and eight straight Tuesdays. I want you to start putting forth some skin in the game and showing God you mean business and you're willing to even do something what I consider very little by just being faithful to the public services of your church and getting the teaching and being in fellowship with other believers on a consistent basis. Will you do that for eight weeks? Your lives are falling apart. Surely you can give eight weeks. After two weeks, Two Sundays and two Tuesdays. They were like, we're checking out. 
we're not going to do this. And all kinds of different emotions entered me. I mean, in one sense, as a pastor, I'm sort of like, ugh, you guys don't get it, do you? You know, frustrated. But another part of me is like sad, like, like pity, like, oh my goodness, you guys, don't you understand? You keep sitting back, not doing what you can do, and you expect God to just show up and do all these miracles and move big in your life and keep the sun from going down, but you're not willing to do what you could do. And folks, this is, a, this is a problem today in the church where we look at passages like this and almost dismiss it like, sun's standing still. Well, that's crazy to even pray that. No, it's not. Can I say to you, God may not need to keep the sun up in your life because that may not be what you need. That's what Joshua and the army of Israel needed. But God will, in his own way, keep that sun from going down if you believe. And you can pray those type of prayers because he's the same God today that he was back then. But you and I have to believe. And, according to Joshua... We've got to be willing to do our part. We can't expect God to stop the sun, to do some miracle, to work something big in our life when we're not willing to do the things that we can do. You and I need to continue to acknowledge the greatness of God. But as we acknowledge his greatness and believe and trust in who he is, we also need to step up and do what we can do. What does that mean in your life today? Are you willing to pray in your own way, son, stand still in my life? And how does that How does that translate in your life right now? Would you be willing to pray that prayer this morning? As long as you were willing to accompany with it the commitment to say, God, I'm going to start praying that that sun stands still in my life because I need a miracle. I need something big in my life. I need you to move like never before. I, I need you to show up, God. But I will come alongside and I'll partner with you and I'll do what I can do as well. Let's pray. God, I I pray today for these folks and for the folks that will listen to this message on podcast. God, that you will grab a hold of us as your people and you will reveal yourself to us like never before. And that, God, we will truly believe that you are a God that can stop the sun. And God, though we might not in our lives need you to stop the sun, we do need this. And we do need that. And God, I pray for the faith to be able to ask, like Joshua, for prayers like that. Sun, stand still. When you think about an audacious prayer like that in your life, in my life, what 
What does that mean to you and I? How does that translate? Have we even ever thought about praying something that audacious to God? And if not, I would encourage you to begin considering and thinking about praying that way. Don't be afraid. But as you and I pray for those kind of things, may we also be willing to do what we can do. To do our part. Because we believe that when we enter into partnership with you and we do our part and we have the faith to ask you for great things, God, you will show up and you will do miracles and you will do great things. And nothing is impossible for you and nothing is too difficult for you. Help us to believe, God, in you and how great you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.